Hey, this will be a pretty simple episode of EXO. So since I moved back to Vancouver, my main activity has been to just pick a different part of town to go to, to just hang out and write. And on my way there, I listen to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff. So lately I've been listening to Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. And it's about Sega in the early 90s when, uh, you know, they invented Sonic the Hedgehog and, and basically came back from having almost zero market share with the Sega Master System to basically being 50-50 with Nintendo. And it's a pretty amazing story. And I find it extra interesting because I was a Sega kid growing up. It was just by accident. My dad was going to get us a Nintendo for Christmas and, uh, and the whole town was just sold out. You couldn't get them anywhere. So he got us a Sega Master System instead. And it was really cool just because uh, it was like this, I honestly had never even heard of it before. But it was this cool thing and then uh, later I met uh, my friend Terry because we both had a Sega and then through him I met this guy Jay who also had a Sega and was like all my friends had Sega. And then when the Genesis came out we got the Genesis and you know we were Sega kids. But of course we weren't just Sega kids because the Nintendo and the Super Nintendo were awesome. So eventually, uh, we ended up getting those too, you know? It was like the best of both worlds. Maybe you get a Sega, and then a year down the road, you talk your parents into getting you a Nintendo. And it's really cool because uh, I really feel like it's this extra, like, just weird layer of uh, video game knowledge that I have. I still know all of the Nintendo games and all the stuff the Nintendo kids knew, but particularly with the Sega Master System, I know all this other stuff, all these weird games that nobody knows and nobody cared about and that some of them are really, really great. And it does kind of foster that outsider mentality a little bit of like, yeah, I'm not just like everybody else. I've got this other cool thing and like, I don't know, it was neat. And it's really great to listen to this audiobook and to know or to hear about what's going on behind the scenes. And it's interesting because I can think back to my own life when I was a little kid and like, all right, so when I got the Sega Master System, here's what was going on. And then when I got the Genesis with Sonic, Sonic the Hedgehog, like here's what was going on behind the scenes there. And it brings back so many memories of being a kid. And that's one of my favorite things about video games, old video games, modern video games, all of them, like they just... Nothing can bring me back to remembering what it was like to be a kid as much as video games. And I don't have a particularly strong memory, but you know, I just get these weird flashes and images and remember certain days and certain moments. And this book, Console Wars, was doing that for me like incredibly, you know? I'm like 10 hours deep into this audiobook and just remembering those days so much and it's been really great and I remember one day I was out in New Westminster and I was walking next to these train tracks by the water 
where a lot of people fish just this weird thing I saw from from the SkyTrain, you know, the monorail. I just saw this weird place and I was like, all right, I'm going to get off and I'm going to go down there and that'll be my weird place to hang out today. And I remember while I was there, this part came up in that audiobook where the guy who was running Sega during this time, Kalinsky is his name, he meets one of his friends who has a sick daughter. And it's just this little scene and then it passes on. And then today, now it's about a week later, I was walking around Stanley Park, which is this huge park in Vancouver. And I was walking around the seawall. You can walk all the way around the park next to the ocean the whole way. And I was walking and that scene came back to me and I was like, what was that scene? Like that's clearly got to play into things at some point that, that had, you know, that was foreshadowing for something. And then during that walk, that scene paid off and man, it's, I mean, I guess this podcast is no stranger to sad stories, but man, it is a sad story. Basically, it's this fundraiser for pediatric AIDS that Sega agreed to sponsor because Sega was a relatively fledgling company in North America and basically nobody else wanted to sponsor this because people just didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to deal with the idea of kids through blood transfusions getting AIDS and dying, dead kids, right? It's like a PR disaster. And basically, I'm just gonna play that excerpt, just the, those parts from this audiobook. And man, it's real, real sad. After I heard this part, I had to kind of break away from just the, you know, the people that were all kind of walking along the seawall had to kind of duck away off to the side and go find like a fallen tree to sit on and just have myself a little cry because it is, I mean, it's a super sad story no matter how you slice it, but especially I think because my mind has been so, so much more focused on being a kid from listening to this audiobook a lot more than I've thought about it in a long time. And particularly that facet of being a kid of video games, you know, it's like, like those are just really great memories. And then to put myself back in those shoes, the days when I had a Sega Master System and the days when I had a Genesis. And to try to imagine that that's all the days that you have, like that's it. real real sad so here it is here's a an excerpt from this book console wars by blake j harris i recommend it it's a really good book and as as always thanks for listening
Financial reports, sales figures, and market breakdowns can capably tell a story. But the power of numbers will never compare to that of anecdotal evidence. And in the weeks following Sonic's release, everyone at Sega had their own story. A friend called to say that his son kept curling up in a ball and trying to zoom around the house. Some kids at the mall were tapping their shoes like Sonic. The guys at the comic store were arguing about who would win a race between Sonic and The Flash. The realization amongst Sega's employees that what they did in this small office made real-life ripples filled their lives with an anything-is-possible excitement that most of them had lost at some point during their childhood. Kalinsky collected similarly inspiring anecdotes of his own, though his favorites were the second-hand stories that his daughters shared about their Sonic-loving friends at summer camp. To celebrate Sonic Mania, he took his family to Disneyland. Kalinsky and Karen locked arms and led the way, the giddy girls scampering along by their side. Together, they strolled through the crisscrossing little streets of Kalinsky's favorite section of the park, Fantasyland. In addition to the teacups, it had the Matterhorn, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and It's a Small World. He knew that it was en vogue to mock It's a Small World, to call those animatronic dolls creepy or brush off the music as maniacal. But he loved how it was one of the few rides that actually tried to impart a message. Peace, love, unity, community. It strived for more, and maybe it failed, but there was something respectable about how it tried. Kalinsky was humming the ride's hypnotic music when Karen gently nudged him. Look, she said. Kalinsky assumed that it must be another Sonic the Hedgehog devotee doing something hedgehoggy, but it wasn't. He followed the path of his wife's gaze to a father and daughter moving in the opposite direction. The father was sweaty and tired, but trying his best to remain enthusiastic as he pushed a pale little girl in a wheelchair. It was Bruce Kaspar and his daughter, Anique, Kalinsky's former neighbors from Los Angeles. Karen flagged them down, and they all talked and laughed and remembered when. A couple of times, Tom and Karen kindly tried to probe about what was wrong with Anique, but Bruce brushed off the question and explained that she was just sick. Following this encounter, the Kalinskys would learn that Anique had pediatric AIDS, but even before they were aware of the diagnosis, they could tell that the situation was bad. Despite the gravity of her illness, however, Anique wore the biggest smile of them all. Happy and upbeat, she shone with a joy so real that it was contagious. The two families spoke for a while, vowed to keep in better contact, and then went their separate ways, each enjoying a day in the happiest place on Earth. With Sega beginning to take Nintendo's world by storm, Kalinsky thought it was time to start giving back. While Nintendo considered purchasing a Major League Baseball team to be an act of charity, Kalinsky thought that Sega could do something more creative and effective. So, in early 1992, he formed a charitable trust called the Sega Youth Education and Health Foundation, whose mission was to fight diseases plaguing children and to sponsor a variety of educational endeavors, particularly those with an emphasis on pairing learning and technology. At Mattel, philanthropy had always been a top priority, so Kalinsky relished the chance to get back in the corporate giving spirit. An individual can donate money to help support a cause, but an ambitious company can actually cause a shift in the global conversation. Beyond the social benefits, 
Launching a Sega Foundation also served to placate those worried about the social or education merits of video games. Rarely was Kalinsky himself overcome by such thoughts, but doubts were cropping up more frequently now. Maybe it was because, as Emil Heidkamp had mentioned, the games did appear to be quickly drifting toward increased violence. Maybe it stemmed from the sort of personal reflection that happens when you've brought a new life into the world. Or, maybe his concerns came from the growing whispers of parents who were concerned that video games might be detrimental to their children's development. A minority of moms and dads believed that Nintendo, and now Sega, were irresponsibly raising a generation of vidiots. If Kalinsky had wanted to face those concerns head-on, perhaps he could have better understood their origin. But that wasn't something he wished to take on, at least not right now. There was just too much to do, and no time to waste thinking about it. Besides, even if there was any merit to these concerns, they would surely be cancelled out by the good that would come from Sega's new foundation. Yes, he realized that this type of thinking was how a drug kingpin with a penchant for charitable donations might rationalize his lifestyle, but that didn't necessarily make it wrong, right? No, of course not. Sega was already making a difference, and for proof, he need not look further than a recent conversation with Nilsson. A few months ago, Nilsson had ambled into Kalinsky's office. I just got out of a meeting with Cheryl from KISS. This was Cheryl Kiraz from the radio station KISS FM, whom Nilsson had continued to work with ever since the 16 weeks of summer campaign. She was one of the few outside Sega who truly bled Sonic Blue. She flew up here to talk about a summer concert that they want to put on, and she brought along the station's program director, a guy named Bill Richards. Don't know him, Kalinsky said. He was slightly confused, but unable to hide his eagerness to find out how this all fit together. That's kind of unusual that you would bring him along, isn't it? It is, Nilsson said. I kept wondering why they'd spent the money to fly him up here, but then it hit me. They're desperate. Turns out that Bill, the PD, had this crazy idea to bring a bunch of hot acts together for a benefit concert. You know, something to raise money and awareness for a good cause. Except they can't find a single sponsor because that cause is pediatric AIDS. It's hard to accurately describe the national sentiment toward AIDS during the late 80s and early 90s, particularly when it came to children who were infected. But the case of Ryan White in Kokomo, Indiana, goes a long way toward explaining the emotional tug-of-war between fear and sympathy. In 1971, when he was only three days old, Ryan White was diagnosed with hemophilia A. As treatment for this disorder, he was given weekly transfusions of a blood-clotting protein called Factor VIII. This enabled him to live a relatively normal life throughout most of his childhood. But that changed in 1984, when the 13-year-old was rushed to the hospital with symptoms of pneumonia. Following a partial lung transplant, he was diagnosed with AIDS, which he'd acquired through a transfusion. White was given only six months to live, but after beating those odds and regaining some of his strength, he wanted to try to resume a normal life. A large part of that normalcy entailed returning to school, but when community members learned of his intentions, they protested. Fearing that he might be contagious, 50 teachers and over 100 local parents signed a petition to ban Ryan White from Western Middle School. Even though the health commissioner of Indiana informed the school that White posed no risk to other students, he was expelled from the school. The White family challenged this decision and turned to the legal system to get their son readmitted. Over the next year, 
White remained at home as his case went through various courts and appeals, until finally, in August 1986, he was allowed to return to school for eighth grade. Although this appeared to be a major victory, White was generally unhappy upon returning to classes because he had few friends and was often accused of being a queer. Meanwhile, his family received threats on a nearly daily basis, and after a bullet zinged through their living room, they decided to withdraw their son from the school. From then until his death in 1990, White became a national spokesman for the disease, appearing frequently on the Phil Donahue show and participating in charity benefits. His life even inspired a television movie on ABC. Although his efforts helped to significantly raise awareness, the cultural perception of the disease didn't change a great deal. The mention of AIDS was still intrinsically toxic, and that's why no corporations were willing to support the concert that KISS wanted to put on. All they're asking for is 50 grand, Nilsson explained. And for that, because of the stigma, they're offering $200,000 worth of promos and ad time. An amazing cause, and a fantastic deal. Nilsson shook his head again, this time with some anger. So I told her that Sega would be more than happy to sponsor the event. And that's the good news. When the information hit, Kalinsky leaned forward. Wait, he said. Let me get this straight. Without my approval, you already agreed to commit a sizable amount of money to a press-heavy event for a disease whose mere mention makes people look the other way? Yes, I did, Nielsen said tentatively, but with no hint of embarrassment. Kalinsky slapped his desk. Al, he said, I like you more and more each day. This is fantastic. Kalinsky then went on to tell him about Anit Kaspar, the family friend that the Kalinskys had run into at Disneyland. He explained to Nilsson what the resilient young girl had been going through, and how he'd been trying to help her in whatever small ways he possibly could. Paul Newman opened this great organization in Connecticut, the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp. It's a place for very sick children to enjoy the summer camp experience with others in the same position. That's incredible, Nilsson said. It is. It really is, Kalinsky said. And Anique deserves all the incredibleness she can get. So, Karen and I are going to pay for her to go there this summer. Wait, I hope it doesn't conflict with the concert. Do you know what day Kiss has in mind? On April 25th, 1992, just days after the birth of Kalinsky's son and months after Sega's charitable foundation had been formed, Sega and 102.7 Kiss FM presented the first annual Kiss and Unite concert at the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater. The groundbreaking eight-hour event supporting the Pediatric AIDS Foundation included appearances by Celine Dion, Kid in Play, Eddie Money, and many more. Kalinsky didn't recognize all of the performers, but luckily he had brought Anique with him, and she was proving to be a tiny encyclopedia of pop music. That's color me bad, Anique pointed out the group as she and Kalinsky hung out backstage. She was dressed in a cartoon print long-sleeved shirt, and a slightly oversized white summer hat with flowers tucked into its brim. They sing a song called I Adore Me Amour. That means I adore my love. Kalinsky knew Anique had good days and bad days, with more bad than good lately. Today, however, she was bright as could be, and that filled Kalinsky with gratitude. Is the song any good? he asked. Yep, she chirped. It's great. Then let's go talk to them. Anique nodded and they began to move toward Color Me Bad, but Kalinsky could see how weak she was. 
Actually, he said, why don't I bring them over here? Color Me Bad happily came over and treated Anique like a princess. At an event filled with celebrities, she was the star. She deserved it many times over, for an infinite number of reasons, Kalinsky thought, but most of all for her smile. How did she do it, he wondered. No matter how she felt or how the world felt around her, she always had at least the hint of a smile on her face. A smile that was both irresistible and contagious. It really was a gift, and Kalinsky wanted to share it with everyone who was there. So when Rick Dees, Kiss FM's number one DJ, called Kalinsky up to the stage, he made sure to bring Anique in that smile of hers. Ready? Kalinsky asked her when Dees called his name. She nodded, and he proceeded to lift her up so that she wouldn't have to exert herself. She was so unexpectedly light that Kalinsky nearly dropped her. She must have been 40 pounds, 45 tops. He raised her onto his shoulders, and together, they slowly walked onto the stage to the sound of 15,000 people clapping. Kalinsky was handed the microphone and made a short speech. But even as he spoke, he knew that the words didn't matter. The girl on his shoulders and the smile below her flower-trimmed white hat were what mattered. The people in the audience who had replaced fear with concern, they were what mattered. The $211,069 that Sega and KISS FM raised for the Pediatric AIDS Foundation, that was what mattered. Two months later, Kalinsky would receive a call to let him know that Anique had passed away, curled in her mother's arms on the way back from Paul Newman's camp. But that was still several weeks away. On this sunny April day, Kalinsky looked out at the cheering crowd that had packed the Irvine Meadows Amphitheater to publicly support children with AIDS, an event that he and his team had helped to make possible. And then he looked up at a smiling, wonderfully brave girl being showered with the love she deserved. At least there would always be that. <laughs>